0: Two, one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 50. Insert birthday unravely blower whistle noise here. Do those have a name? Anyone? My. A kazoo? A kazoo? Yeah. yeah. But this, is, this one unravels.
2: I didn't think we could talk until we were introduced.
1: You can't. Just you, no. Dell. <laughs> this, this episode is for the week of June 12, 2014. And as I said, this is our 50th episode. Big, arbitrary, meaningless hallmark for us. But nonetheless, we are very, very, very happy. You've already heard from a couple people. Why don't I introduce everyone? We have Carolina Balkenbush. She is a registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. Hello. We have... Delbert Jackson, he is a Ph.D. in biomedical engineering, not pile medical. That's very different. I'm working on that one now. Hello. (laughs) And Christian Copley Salem, he is a graduate student in cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yay. You have to say, yes, I am. You can't say, no, I'm not. Yes, I am not. (laughs) And uh, I, too... I'm in a cell molecular pharmacology program at UNR. So, that's the team. Tonight is, uh, if you're listening to this tomorrow, which will be Friday the 13th, did you guys know it's a full moon? And not only is it a full moon, it's a full honeymoon, which refers to the colored hues I had to look up and the moon's color, making it kind of yellowy. And we have not seen something of this magnitude in 100 years. It's pretty cool. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So another big arbitrary uh, another big arbitrary (laughs) number. There we go. Hundred years full moon. Um, What do you guys think of the whole like increase in murder and all that fun stuff on Friday the thirteenth? Have they proven that to be inaccurate, or does it really happen, and it's just because people freak out for no reason? It's a myth. It's a myth. Okay. Yeah. That should have been on your myth episode. I know. know. Well, we we stuck to the biology stuff. We did. We did.
3: Well, you know, it's okay. So, I so after listening to that episode, I quizzed my husband on all those things, and he scored better than all of you guys.
1: He's a lawyer.
3: I know. It could just be dumb luck. I don't know. <laughs> he, he cheated. cheated.
1: <laughs> Are you sure it was statistically significant? Did you did you run a t test? I'm not here to criticize you.
3: <laughs> i'd be to run that for you baby
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> um so what's everyone been up to i mean it's been it's been a week since uh since our famous episode last week which by the way not one but two people chimed in with the magic word oh nice oh what you may- Remember how...
3: Yeah, squirrel.
1: It was squirrel or monkey or what Was it squirrel? I thought it was monkey. Was it squirrel? Okay.
3: So nice. What does this have
1: to... I'm lost. What is this a thing now? <laughs> yeah, it
3: was a thing no, it, to, be, to prove that somebody
1: listened to the whole thing. It, which is all the more appropriate because Dell was pretty much non-existent last week. And so, Dell to remind you, because you were technically there, um, but clearly not entirely there, at the end of the episode I said if anyone's listening the magic world is squirrel or whatever it was so type it in and, and you'll receive no print. I
2: heard that but I didn't it
1: came out of left field to me today or last week last week oh it did I was just so uh, completely uh disheveled and depressed at, uh, at 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 that week that um that I just I threw it in uh it was a it was a, a magical moment for me but no that will not be a weekly thing we're not testing our listeners to ensure they're listening Good Long podcast glad for
3: that. <laughs> so did yeah, anyone do It's hard these? enough
2: to get them to listen yeah. Now we had the aspect of a test to it I'm sure even your mom will stop you listening You will
1: be tested <laughs> uh, Yes Well to those two people I don't remember your names But may great wealth and happiness Befall you and your loved ones Because you are yeah. wonderful human beings So um, what else have people done this week? Anything fun?
3: No. I'm I'm sick, oh. so I'm on a lot of Sudafed and Alka Seltzer. Just trying to decongest.
1: Speaking of myths, is it really true you can't give Alka Seltzer to birds? Have you guys heard this myth?
3: Well, they I blood. think that one's true. That seems.
1: I heard that, but I don't right.
3: know. Well, I've heard the rice, you can't that you can't give uh, rice to pigeons or something like that.
1: It's probably uh, a, a a slower version of the same thing, which is they can't burp or fart from what I've been told. And so uh, <laughs> if you give them an Alka-Seltzer, they essentially are swallowing a grenade, but uh, I don't know if that's accurate.
3: Well, I have some spare tablets. I guess I could find out.
1: <laughs> I'd prefer you didn't. What <laughs> um, a sick experiment would that be. It is sick. <laughs> I'm gonna give one last shout out to this, which is the what is known as the slow cooker. Um, we had the the cheapest twin pack of, of meat you could get at Costco that was pre-marinated because you can't buy one of anything. We cooked the normal one in the oven, you know, 350 for an hour or whatever it was. It was tough. It didn't taste very good. The second one I threw in the slow cooker a few days ago, cooked it for eight hours on low, and it was just like a delicious pot roast. If you don't have a slow cooker, your life will improve if you get one. I promise you can get it for like 35 bucks at Walmart or whatever. It is absolutely worth every single penny. And then the one I ate I, I know I'm, br- I'm bringing this up because I had the pot roast for dinner tonight and it had been in the kitchen for four days, so it like had all the proteins had continued to break down during that time, and it just had melted in my mouth. So, that's my slow cooker push. Well, slow cookers are fun.
0: <laughs> this episode brought to you by Honeywell. I saw the new Tom Cruise movie. Ah,
1: yes. As did
0: I. Thoughts? um, It was was fun up until the end where they totally blew it. But I'm just going to go on a little rant without doing any sort of spoiler thing here. There has never been in the history of time a movie or TV show that had any sort of time-jumping, alternate-time-movement plotline that didn't screw it up to such an incredible degree that it irritated me and made me hate it. And oh. I didn't notice it in this movie at first, but when I walked away from the theater, I was like, okay, they screwed
1: that up. Oh, well, we'll give it the appropriate non-spoiler time and talk about it again in the future, potentially. But, um, yeah. but uh, I'm interested in knowing your um... – oh, there's some kids out my window. Interested in knowing the, uh, your, your thoughts on that. The only thing that got me on the movie, and this isn't a spoiler, is I actually saw one of those incontinuities <laughs> that you see in movies. <laughs>
2: Have you guys seen that cartoon, Up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know the dog that has that that instrument attached to it? Yeah, (laughs) and it vocalizes. And the dog's just, like, talking, and that's cool. (laughs) Uh, Scott just had like a Doug moment I do that all the time He's talking and he's like
1: Old man Barnett is like There's some kids out there there, It's it's a bit of a secluded Enclave here So I'm not used to uh, other human beings (laughs) Being in my line of (laughs) sight here It's a cul-de-sac not an enclave (laughs) (laughs) No 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 it's not the cul-de-sac It's an enclave by the side of the house How dare you people I'm always attacked by you all
2: He's like randomly saying, Oh, I have blue scissors on my desk. By the way, I was-
1: <laughs> But about the movie, and we can move on, there was he was Tom Cruise is sitting in a chair, he's wearing his military jacket, and they cut to him, and his center button is completely undone. Then they cut back to him like one second later, button not undone. Huh. That is just bad movie making, people. Maybe he buttoned it not possible yeah
3: I mean no it could have been
1: time travel it, this movie is all <laughs> about time travel so potentially but not really they just screwed it up and I felt very proud of myself so um enough about Tom Cruise what about cool. the kids
2: outside your window
1: they've temporarily <laughs> retreated perhaps they saw the stunned scary look on my face and they're... Saw that beard poke out the face. they're they're seeking adult supervision saying mommy there's a man looking at me funny <laughs>
2: So something, um, we, we need to know.
1: Totally we we will push forward here. So there, this is not the traditional uh, science blast, meat of the sandwich ending segment. We are doing something different this week. We've each decided that since it was uh, this is our fiftieth episode, we would go fifty years into the past, which we discovered after looking at our stories that it is not 1950 50 years ago it was in fact 1960s but we all pretty much pulled stories from the 1950s so we pulled stories from long ago we wanted to see what was state-of-the-art science what was going on what were people thinking way back when how does it compare to what we have now and uh, we're going to to talk about that so um without further ado ado christian you have probably one of the one of the more impactful segments, or or I should say stories. I do. uh, Because it is uh, quite possibly everyone knows the scientist you will bring up. And not only that, if you were to ask any American, I'd say 98% of Americans to name one scientist from from more than 10 years ago or even a year ago, they could probably not do it, but they'd probably all heard of the people you're speaking of. Who are those people?
0: Maurice Wilkins. You know what? Everybody loves Maurice Wilkins. (laughs) He's like the Judas of science. Is <laughs> so
1: <he's... No>, he? No. <laughs> Christian is being a uh, a funny guy. <sighs> Who are you speaking of, Christian? Don't leave what... me hanging. <laughs> Watson and
0: Crick. Yay. Even though I'm going to be honest, maybe 1% of my talk is about them. Okay. Well, well, can we start off with them since I built it up so high? Sure. Why not? Um, it's kind of a standing on the shoulders of giants story. Um and everybody is probably familiar with the idea, as Scott said, that Watson and Crick were the ones who, quote-unquote, discovered the structure of DNA. And all of that really means is that they stood on a long line of people. They stood on their shoulders and did something that, to them, was probably much more obvious than it would have been to other people before their time.
1: But the um, last inch is very hard, too, even though that's— It,
0: it, it can be. I'm, I'm going to let that one fall right there on the floor. Right. Um But let's go back to 1869. So this is like a long time ago.
1: Was this when uh, you were born?
0: No, no. Boom, old
1: person joke. I'm not the only one who can do them.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) It's because you've been around longer than that, so you're good at it. So anyways, back in 1869, a a Swiss biochemist, whose name I'm going to
1: destroy, uh, Meischer, Meischer, M-I-E-S-C-H-E-R, um, is that the guy that did all those uh, drawings where everything's upside down and weird? I don't know. Where's that? Escher. No, I, I think, think that's Escher. Escher.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. Meischer was the first person to actually isolate um, nucleic acids from the nuclei of white blood cells, which he got from the blood runoff from patients in the hospital, which is kind of creepy and cool at the same time. What's a nucleic acid? Um, a nucleic acid is an acid in the nucleus. <laughs> <And> <laughs> okay, hold on. We're going to build to that. Let's are, just okay. go let's go with that. I just okay. don't want
1: everyone to assume that they that our audience everyone knows what nucleic right. acids are. Okay. But but we don't need to, we don't need to describe
0: that right now because he's he all he knows he called it nucleon. Um he didn't really know what it was. Um so he called it nucleon, and he got he basically was working with like giant rubber gloves and an Allen wrench by, by the standards that we have of tools we have today. So he pretty much obliterated um, this DNA into really tiny fragments. Um, So he came up with a chemical formula that was basically an average of all of the chemicals that he found in this nucleon that he pulled out. Um, And it's woefully small. Because he basically chopped these things into little pieces. Um, but he did know that it had carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and phosphorus in it. And that's about really all that he did. Which back in 1869 is actually a pretty pretty good accomplishment. Um, in 1879, a guy named Walter Fleming discovered chromosomes under a microscope. Yeah. He actually watched them divide. And um, that... Ha- Prompted another scientist named Hertwig to actually declare that, that this material was the material of heredity. And back in this day, they didn't actually know how bio- biological information was passed from one, um, basically, a parent to a child. They had no idea what, what caused heredity to work.
1: But because, of like um, Mendel and stuff, we knew things were passed on in some packet of information we just didn't know how right right
0: they knew that there was some sort of way to encode heredity they just didn't know what material was doing it um and so it took until about 1900 which is you know about 20 years later um before they figured out the actual macromolecules that go into making dna so They had A, T, C, and G, which is adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine. They had ribose, and they had phosphates. Um, They had no idea really how that went together, because a lot of this stuff is done where they just obliterate the structure, and then they look at the pieces. So the first guy obliterated it down to the atoms and found the atoms. In 1900s, they obliterated it down to the, the base pairs, the bases, the ribosugar, and the phosphate. Um, some guy named Levine showed that these components were linked together in the order of phosphate, sugar, and base. So he, he noticed that, or he found that the phosphate and the sugar were linked together and that the base stuck out from the sugar. And he called these nucleotides. Um, and that was in the early 1900s. By 1930, um, a couple of researchers, Hammerston and Kasperson um showed that DNA was a polymer, so that these they showed that these nucleotides that Levine had dis- had elucidated were linked together into a long chain. Um people still basically thought that this chain was regular and that no matter how long it was, it had the same sequence. That the chemicals were always arranged in the same order. Um And people thought that for a long time until, um, actually, Erwin Schrödinger, so this is a physicist, Uh, most people have heard of Schrödinger's cat, it's the same guy who actually didn't do anything with cats. Um, He surmised that the blueprint for life would be a compound whose components were arranged in a long, irregular sequence that could carry information in the form of a genetic code. He actually wrote a book called What is Life? And in that book, he proposed this idea. Um, and a lot of people thought that proteins, because they're built from amino acids and have varying structures, um, would be the molecule of heredity, based a lot on what Schrodinger said.
1: Yeah, I heard um, about that. That Actually, to me, is hugely fascinating that like that was the path we were going, right? there was so much variety in proteins but like Mm -hmm. ATC and G I mean geez that's four things how could you make anything complicated out of it right it makes more intuitive basic sense to say that for what they knew Um, I would absolutely would have fallen on that team back then
0: yeah so then a couple of things happened um, and I'm not exactly sure in which order they happened but they're all in the early 1900s this guy named Chargaff pioneered paper chromatography for nucleic acids. And so basically what he did is um, he was able to separate out different pieces of DNA and coordinate the amount of each of the bases, A, T, C, and G, that were within what he was separating. Um, And he found that Basically, all of the bases had a similar proportion, no matter what tissue they came from. So overall, there was basically the same amount of everything. But even more significant, he found that the proportion of A and T was always the same, and the proportion of C and G was always the same. Okay. Okay. This is actually um, known as Chargoff's ratio. Um, So he he basically came up with the idea that a and t and c and g were somehow equal in in proportion um and this was an important thing for jumping forward to the 1930s um for how the people who ultimately determined this c- this structure that was one of the major pieces of information that they used that a and t and c and g went together um by the 1930s, the use of X-rays to look at the structures of large biomolecu- biomolecules was being developed. Um, Dr. Hodgkin, Dorothy Hodgkin, um, did work on molecules like penicillin and bacteria and such, and pretty much brought X-ray crystallography um, into into the mainstream. Um, one of the one of her descendants, in terms of intellectual use of this x-ray crystallography was Rosalind Franklin whose name probably doesn't surprise anybody who knows anything about this story um, who worked around 1940 at King's College and she was somewhat of a prodigy in the use of x-ray crystallography and so what she did was she went in and she took a whole bunch of crystal photographs x-ray crystal photographs of DNA and she actually got a lot of different kinds of pictures. Um, it, was, it was her later on who published the paper showing that what she was actually photographing was different shapes of the same thing. And that they come in different conformations. But she took this one picture, and it looks like an X if you look at it. Um, I'm going to give Scott all the papers that this comes from, and it's a cool picture. Cool. Uh, go ahead. No, I said cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, she. It's just basically an X pattern, but in the crystal in X-ray crystallography, that implies a helix shape for the molecule. And she was working closely with someone named Maurice Wilkins, who I'm going to call the Judas of science. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maurice and Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin did not get along well. Um, they were colleagues and they worked together, but they didn't get along well. And um, and so that's going to come back in our story in a little bit. Right about the same time she was making those photographs, um, Linus Pauling. Does anyone know who Linus Pauling is? Wow, yes. that chip.
3: Yep, that's what my story's about.
0: Is it? Nice. Pauling exclusion principle, blah, 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 blah. So he proposed um, that DNA was a helix that had two phosphate backbones, which is as we know today correct but he proposed that the backbones were at the center and that all the bases stuck out like little little projections from this column which is the opposite
1: of reality right, right.
0: um some things he didn't take into account is that without salt the phosphate backbones would repel each other um with salt they would fall apart so we should eat more salt right um so that wasn't exactly true his his structure is obviously not correct um enter enter our our quote unquote heroes of the day James Watson and Francis Crick, and they were working together at Cambridge on this structure um they both come from different backgrounds and um different different disciplines. Crick was into molecular biology Watson was more of a chemist um but They happened to go to Rosalind Franklin's lab while she wasn't there. And Maurice Wilkins, pretty much against her will, showed them her crystallography pictures. And they saw the helix shape. And they remembered that A and T and C and G fit together. And a friend of theirs suggested that there was a hydrogen bonding capability between A and T and C and G. And so what they did is they went back and basically built a structure out of tinker toys that metal, little metal chemical models, um, which is the famous picture of them standing next to this model that they built. They basically used Legos of the time and built this structure that was correct. So to say that Watson and Crick discovered the DNA helix shape or devised it is really inaccurate because as we've seen from all of this talk, all the pieces that they put together were from somebody else. They just basically sat down and put these pieces together. Um, Which, as Scott says, isn't to demean what they did. What they did was still brilliant because all of these pieces are floating around and nobody else thought of it. Um, You know, Linus Pauling, one of uh, an amazing chemist, Failed to notice that the phosphate backbones
1: would repel each other. Well, in a way, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And oh, we do. This
0: is—it's a great science story, right? Because right. this is how all good science works. You get to the end, and somebody wins a Nobel Prize. But the truth is that they would have to give credit to intellectually everyone that's come before them in science. That science is a collaborative enterprise, right? To quote Carl Sagan,
1: cool. and it's the reason we've sent uh, uh, drones to Mars and uh, the monkeys are still picking ants out of logs. Right. That's really what makes it is the collaborative effort of, of our brains right. that makes us special. So, sorry, go ahead. Yes.
0: No, but that, I mean, then that's absolutely true, which is why I think this is a great story in for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because it's a great story of how science works. Um. You know, there's, there's betrayal and there's all kinds of different things. There's arguments about whether Rosalind Franklin should have received the Nobel prize or been on their paper, um, but... That's was... always
1: contentious about who gets yeah. on the paper, yeah.
0: She released, if you... I put them all together, and Scott composed them. The actual issue of Nature that they published this discovery in, the next page, literally butting up against the end of their paper, is a paper from her about the crystallography that she did. So it isn't that she didn't get published for her work. Um, she wasn't just completely ignored people like to think that oh she's completely ignored because we all think oh Watson and Crick figured out DNA she wasn't completely ignored she was a, a significant scientist and she published
1: a yeah, lot but of but people say don't say Watson and Crick and who you know what I mean They right, just say Watson. right
0: I'm gonna be honest nowadays a lot of people who are remotely interested in this story know who she is
1: yeah I mean you know it yeah, I mean how many people grapes. know Reese Wilkins is I have no idea who Reed Yeah, nobody.
0: He's the Judas of Science, and that's, right. that's what we're going to call him now. <laughs> All right. <sorry.
1: laughs>
0: but anyway, so yeah, they discovered the phosphate backbones were on the outside, not the inside, and boom, the structure um. was correct.
1: That is a fascinating story. Awesome. I didn't know a lot of that. I mean, honestly, 70% of that was new to me on some level, so that's really, really cool. Cool. Yeah. Caroline. Mine is kind
3: of like a tasty little intermission, so I can just do mine real quick. Please do. <clears throat> okay. Excuse me, sorry. This sickness is getting in my throat. So, in the 1950s and 1960s, the us was was still kind of uh, coming out of the war two world wars and the Great Depression. So people didn't really care about nutrition too much. People didn't want to know what was going to kill them. They weren't really thinking about heart disease yet at that point. Cancer wasn't really a huge concern just yet. Um, that was kind of down the pipeline another 10 years.
1: That was back when all the doctors were advertising for uh, cigarettes, right? Cigarette companies? <laughs> they're like, uh, yes, they're like menthol cigarettes, good for your throat.
3: Yeah, and it's, it's crazy, too, looking at um, ju- just rates of diabetes back then compared to now. Uh, back then, there were, I think, fewer than uh, 1% of Americans were had a diagnosis of diabetes yeah. versus now they're projecting that it's going to be 1 in 3 by the year 2050. And if you're Hispanic or African American, it's like 1 in 2, so 50%. Jeez. Um, and- Childhood obesity was almost unheard of. I think the the rate was fewer than 4% of uh, children were overweight or obese. And iPads, um, you can't.
1: I mean, (laughs) that's really the difference. Comparing apples to oranges, right? (laughs) Right.
3: So uh, foods that were considered healthy back in the 1960s were things like eggs, bacon, sausages, milk, dairy, butter, um, all these foods that, that had been in short supply or rationed during the war. So now people wanted to to really enjoy them. Um, so exactly 50 years ago, the year 1964, um, a couple little facts about that year, um, Diet Pepsi was first introduced. Um mm-hmm. Uh, sodas first started being sold in 12-ounce cans and ah. plastic milk containers became commercially Before they be available. A little
1: 8-ounce glass bottles?
3: Yeah. Huh. Yeah, those cute little 1950s glass bottles and things started to change. Same with milk. They went from milk bottles to plastic milk containers. Do you think
1: it was a case of too much of a good thing? Like when you're, when you're like, kind of like with Lent, when you're forced to, to to give up something, you want it all the more in the end. So we had a, we had Fifteen years of Lent, and now people were just like, "I don't want the eight ounce bottle; I want the twelve ounce." Do you think it was uh, a, or do you think it was more uh, complex than that?
3: Um, you know, I didn't look into it at all. If uh, I had yeah. to guess, I would say it was probably just uh, trying to produce more of it. Maybe it was more economical to produce the cans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. 1960s also saw the introduction of Domino's Pizza. Wendy's uh, Sprite was introduced. So people were really, really starting to get into their processed foods. And interestingly, there were, there were, there were no nutrition facts required to be listed on any foods. Um, mandatory labeling actually didn't happen until 1990. But certain foods did contain dietary information. Like for, for people who are concerned about blood pressure, there was, there was sodium content listed on certain foods. Um, so, so really, there wasn't a whole lot going on nutrition science, um, but by the 1950s, all the vitamins had been discovered, and Linus Pauling, who was involved in the, the DNA research, was becoming a, a pretty well-known scientist at that point. I know I did a full story on him quite mm-hmm. a while ago. I think it was my, my first episode on the show. Was it really? Actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And so it's what what did you hot. talk
1: about then? Because that was actually a really fascinating little tidbit you had.
3: Yeah, so, so back then, um, I talked about the history of vitamin research and whether or not people should take um, vitamin supplements um, in, in normal doses or megadoses. So megadose uh, vitamin therapy is called orthomolecular medicine, and it's a, it's a form of pseudoscience. Um, it's considered quackery and, and definitely not regarded um, as effective by the medical community. Um, but it became popular in the 1960s, largely because of Linus Pauling. Uh, and so what they would do is they, they were tra- trying to, to treat all kinds of conditions with vitamins. They were looking to cure um, allergies, arthritis, autism, burns, cancer, common cold, depression, drug addiction, um, metabolic disorders, migraines, poisoning, polio, and very interestingly, they they tried to cure uh, schizophrenia. With niacin, which is vitamin B three, um, psychiatrists Humphrey Osmond and Abram Hoffer gave people with acute schizophrenic with acute schizophrenic episodes high doses of niacin. Um, so niacin it has no known effect on psychiatric disease. Um, so I don't know why on earth they, they thought that that would be a good idea. They saw they saw no effect, no benefit. Yeah, we we'll and-
1: look at homeopathy and we can answer the same ask the same question. So.
3: Yeah, exactly. But, but this idea of, of um, vitamins being a good thing uh, sounded pretty good, honestly, because the idea is that you need the right molecules in the right amounts in your body. And if your diet is poor, then you're probably not getting the right amounts of vitamins. Um, so that's that's pretty much all that was going on in nutrition.
1: Huh. It was a, It was a black hole in the nutritional planet, right? yep 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 so uh i wonder what a person such as you like like with your type of job or i guess your type of job didn't even exist back then right
3: oh well actually maybe it did because okay so, so i mentioned to you what what the main diet consisted of people were eating all kinds of stuff um and they weren't really concerned about concerned about saturated fats they weren't concerned about dairy they weren't concerned about butter or any of that but people who wanted to go on a diet were concerned about carbs So the most common diet of like the 1950s and 1960s period was to cut out carbs, cut out bread and pasta.
1: Was it like an Atkins-type diet? Yeah, yeah,
3: interestingly. So it's funny how we kind of revert back, (laughs) you know, to 50 years ago.
1: Are you a
2: fan of Mad Men?
3: Yes. I thought it was interesting
2: they used Betty to kind of touch on that craze, and I think they did it because prior to that time period, there wasn't really this concept of dieting and watching your weight and all of that, so... I liked how they had her balloon up, and then they now, and then I think they even mentioned Weight Watchers, which was like a new thing oh. at the time.
1: I uh, I watched a lot of Mad Men, but that's basically when I stopped watching it. I mean, maybe it was that third or fourth season somewhere right in there? Oh, you
2: didn't like Fat Betty? Is that what turned you off from the show? Uh, no. Fat Fat Betty, skinny again? Uh,
1: oh, she yes, and
3: she's also blonde again. Yeah. Wait,
1: oh, yeah. I didn't even see her not go blonde. Spoiler alert, people. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs>
3: I, I keep like, meaning to finish it. It got a little
1: like a little obscure when they went to the they created their own aid ad ad agency and they started doing their own I don't know, I, I lost and then he went to California and there was all that weirdness. Like I, I just I'm like I feel like they'd done what the show needed to do at that point, but everyone says I should finish it, so
3: well, it's not quite done. I think there are a few more episodes left, and I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that the whole series doesn't end in Don Draper committing suicide. He
2: is. That's that would, totally it. Uh, That's totally on the title card, so. Uh, He's dead.
3: It. I, I'd buy That's that. It's very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> but they do, they do do a very good job of portraying what people were eating in that era. Uh, basically, in the 1950s, there were a lot of casseroles, in the 1960s, people started to embrace uh, foreign influence in their cuisine,
0: like pot brownies? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: That's homegrown, yeah. friend. I was
3: going to say like Mexican food and a lot of French influence from Julia Child, but sure, <laughs> pot brownies. Um,
1: speaking of that food from that time, next time we come back, Carolina said she's going to talk about uh, butter. Because uh, if you've watched, seen the cover of Time Magazine this week or it's been in the popular press last week or so, uh, there is a lot of hubbub about scientists being wrong about butter and how you should eat it and, and it's not the evil thing uh, with saturated fat people claimed it to be
3: yeah th- that was actually going to be my topic last week but then I got so frustrated <laughs> going so through everything it because be it's such a topic, contentious subject uh, but I will be ready drink. by next time
1: okay beautiful um, alright so uh, Delbert you were eating dinner did you want to go or did you want me to go and then you can continue to eat why
2: don't you go Scotty uh, I would love to unless uh, you think the kids are back
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: I love those kids Alright um, Okay, so I kind of have a an amalgam Hodgepodge, smorgasbord Whatever you want to call it Of stories I found a, a website Which has the ever so catchy name Of Um Which we've all heard of Of course uh, It's a .es host so from Spain But it was written in a manner Which suggests it's just hosted in Spain Because it's very American Englishy written y. Um but <laughs> hopefully better than that. <laughs> <laughs> it goes over all the big advances in science in the fifties and uh it's a really, really cool thing. I lifted most of the stuff from there and expanded upon it. But uh I'm just gonna power through these. I'm gonna give myself no more than ten minutes and uh and these are really, really cool things. So the nineteen fifties, like this was pretty much one of the last decades we had before computer analysis became like a major common tool of analysis. So we keep that in mind when we talk about this, how most of these things were done with pencil, paper, just raw, brute mental power, which is impossible these days. You could never advance scientific research just through pure thought. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's very heavily aided by computers. So uh, 1951, the FDA uh for the first time they announced that there would be two different categories of drugs i'm a pharmacologist by nature so i find this stuff fascinating there that's when they first said in 1951 that there would be a prescription and non-prescription drugs before that it was kind of this this gray area between you could pretty much get what you wanted where you wanted and there wasn't actually full regulation uh, of that so this caused dramatic changes within the relationship relationships between uh, like doctors and drug companies because now doc- drug companies rather than just putting the drug out into the market as in like you would say like uh, if you wanted someone to eat a Twix versus a Kit Kat they needed to get doctors to prescribe their drugs and it really changed the the nature about uh about how we how we deliver drugs in the country so that's one uh 1952 uh good scientific advance here thin sectioning and fiction and fixation of uh of um of biological samples for electron microscopy, so that we could so start fun. looking at stuff. Tons of stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, well, someone in our lab just did some really cool microscopy to uh, to look at uh, uh to look at little little tiny things that come out of a cell. And so back before that, we really just had one of the primary techniques. Why I'd say ninety eight percent of everything that was done was just done through wide field or bright field light microscopy, which is what you used in high school to look at you know, a cell, basically. And the limitation was that is you can really only see down to like a micron, which is a millionth of a meter if you're interested. And you can see about bacterial size. Uh, You might see some organelles in there. But you're really limited by the fact that with a light wave, uh, anything smaller than the peak to trough the wavelength there, uh, you can't see anything smaller than that. And our eyes can only see down to about a micron as far as the, the wavelength. And anything smaller than that, we just can't see. So so they really started pushing electron microscopy forward, which which is, of course, uh, it's been a huge advantage. So there's that. Uh, what else we got here? AJP Martin in Britain, he developed gas liquid partition chromatography, which sounds incredibly boring but was actually really important and most people <laughs> in science have heard of this. Uh, this allows you basically to to take uh, uh, chemicals in a solution and allows you to separate them. Everything has a gas phase. It has a, a liquid phase and you put different chemicals in a very, very thin tube that's sub-millimeter in diameter and you can actually, with under high pressure, you can separate out chemicals. And so before, if you had a solution... With biological chemicals in there, it was very hard to basically say, uh, what are the four chemicals in here? How are we going to identify them? This allowed you to actually, like, like push it through this column and say, each, this is what each of these chemicals are. That is still in common use today. It's a huge, important advance. And this was done, geez, 60 years ago. So, um, what else do we got here? 1959, everyone on this podcast has heard of polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis.
0: I have never done that, and I don't know what you're talking about. I wish
1: you weren't what? a liar. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, page electrophoresis. This is a uh, this is uh, called a Western blot. Uh, everyone who's ever worked in a lab knows about this. This allows you to take proteins in a solution. You can separate them by their charge, and or their molecular weight. Excuse me. And um, and this is a very 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 common technique. Uh, I've done it hundreds of times. Pretty much everyone. In a lab has done it before. Still very commonly used today. It's being displaced by, by mass spectrometry now, but it is still uh, the, the, pretty much the gold standard. And this was done, geez, almost 60 years ago. And it's amazing that this has stuck along that, that long. So what else we got? Ooh, probably one of the most meaningful medical stories uh, of the entire century, to be honest with you, uh, was the, this conquest of polio. So um, have you guys heard of Mr. Salk? The Salk Institute. Jonas Salk. That is correct. Uh, he created uh, an inactivated polio vaccine, and he this was a scourge in society. And this happened in in the fifties. Um, and this is what uh, what his his contribution to science was. So, uh, polio virus. I actually had to look this up because it's because it's been eradicated. Because we really don't talk about it anymore. We don't know about it. Uh, I really didn't even know what it was but poliovirus is really interesting so it enters the body through the mouth so you can actually get it from like drinking a drink from someone else or having contaminated food and it first comes in um, in, in cells uh, normally in the pharynx or in the intestinal mucosa and it gains entry into the body by binding to something called an uh, immunoglobulin like receptor these are CD155 receptors if you're so inclined. Uh, on the cell membrane so what this does is the polio is uh, it goes into these in- gastrointestinal cells it divides for about a week and then it spreads throughout uh, the body in particular it goes up to the tonsils and this is how people first figured out they had polio at the time was that you normally had uh, inflammation of the tonsils you had a tonsillitis so um, from there um, it goes into intestinal lymphoid cells. These are called M-cells. Uh, if you've ever heard of a Peyer's patch, these are basically these little – they're little fly traps for, back, uh, for, for pathogens that your body uses to, to create antibodies, but the polio virus deceives them, and it causes all kinds of issues. So um, most people, like well over 90% who got polio, it was just an infection your body dealt with, and you moved on. But a very small percentage of people, the polio virus penetrated the central nervous system. And um, which is interesting because there's no real benefit to the virus for doing this. It doesn't divide or or live any longer. Or it doesn't have any real advantages to that. But it would penetrate the central nervous system is kind of this uh, this side effect here. And it's funny even today the 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 mechanism by which poliovirus spreads throughout the the central nervous system, central nervous system isn't really known. But um, the fact is is that when it does get into there, it destroys motor neurons. It interferes with the spinal cord, brainstem, motor cortex, and you get what is known as a very typical uh, polio virus-related um, uh, you know, uh, issues, which is the people with a, uh, the, you're often wheelchair-bound, and you have uh, deformities within the body, and it all has to do with it going into your central nervous system. But it was very small, only a very small percentage of people were affected in that way. So, um, huge, huge, huge thing. Jonas Salk, glad we had him around. What else do we do? I got three minutes. Successfully transplanted frog nuclei from one to another. And this is actually like the, the grandfather of, multi, of modern cloning techniques. We actually were to be able to take that DNA material that Watson and Crick uh, helped shape or not shape, if, depending on the Christian story. Um, and uh, and, and we, we were able to clone. So, uh, ooh, that year. We were able to find out that Down syndrome is trisomy 21, or is it 23? 21. 21, okay. Um, that means you have an extra chromosome, which is a problem. So we all know that you've got you know, 23 chromosomes from mom, 23 from dad. Those two work together. They make proteins. If you have an extra chromosome 21, you're pumping out a lot of extra proteins, and it causes, well, you to have Down syndrome. So that was discovered for the first time. It's the first time we saw an effective treatment for tuberculosis. So a British physician by the name of Austin Bradford Hill, he demonstrated that a combination of streptomycin and para acid, they called PAS, could actually cure um, could cure tuberculosis or as I prefer to call it, the consumption. Uh, this was long before we had complete antibiotic resistance to tuberculosis and some strains. So this was a huge, uh, uh, leap in the field. Um, I remember seeing these shows. Did you guys ever see like the science back then where if you had tuberculosis, they would send you like out to like really cold, high altitude environments and they'd force you to sit outside in like sub zero temperatures with blankets to try to cure the tuberculosis. Have you guys ever seen this stuff? No. No. Yeah, they had just Mm-mm. crazy like attempts to cure this. Cause I mean, this was killing millions of people and, and there was no real effective cure. And they thought that the cold, clean mountain air, thin mountain air would somehow oh would cause it to fixes. And there's you can Google it. There are pictures of like twenty people wrapped in like nine blankets at like eighty two hundred feet minus fifteen degree temperatures just outside, just their mouths exposed so they could breathe in the cold air. But of course that was not terribly effective. Um yeah, tuberculosis is a really scary thing, you know, it's uh it's one of these 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 bacteria that can really trick your immune system. You know, when you take it in, just like any bacteria, you have macrophages, which are like the vacuum cleaners in your cells or in your body. They'll come up and they'll eat up anything that doesn't that, that is either old and dead or doesn't belong there. They taste these things and then they they activate your immune system to say, hey, this is bad and we need to figure out how to deal with this problem. Tuberculosis is really fascinating in that it will actually be absorbed into the macrophage via something called an endosome. And rather than being digested and and then and then having that macrophage tell the whole body that, hey, this is the problem, we need to deal with this thing, it actually lives quite happily there. Your body will actually throw in additional uh, uh, forces to try to kill this thing in the cell and it just hits sits there happy like a like like it's in a hot tub just enjoying the afternoon so it can't be killed and then that causes the body to try to package it off and you get issues in the lung and blah 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 so it, it's very good at just out surviving every attempt to kill it so this was a huge thing uh, this huge discovery um, okay I got one minute I'll be quick here um, MAOIs you guys heard of these things they're drugs used to treat psychoses Um, these were really popular back then these are monoamine oxidase inhibitors and uh, they're still actually used today but but kind of as a last resort because they have high toxicity but they uh, prevent the breakdown of monoamine neurotransmitters in the brain and um, uh, this basically causes uh, you to to reverse the effects of of, uh, depression. So, uh, fun new fact, though, MAOIs are currently used to treat Parkinson's. Very weird side effect. Maybe we can talk about it back in the box in the future. Uh, Thiazide drugs, really popular. These control um, hypertension. Those were developed. And uh, one of the last things we'll talk about here is Thorazine. Thorazine is a uh, a chlorazepamine. Um, Mazine, excuse me, is a uh, very popular antipsychotic. It's actually still used today. You may have heard of a Thorazine drip. Uh, used before. Uh, if These were really popular in insane asylums back in the day because it acts as a tranquilizer. <laughs> it, uh, if you ever saw someone sitting in a straitjacket in the corner of a, a room drooling, it's probably because they were given high doses of thorazepine. These days we call that a chemical restraint versus a physical restraint and it's actually in most cases, considered uh, illegal or, or really frowned upon because you're not supposed to just drug some up to control them. And these work by uh, uh, they're an antagonist to your dopamine receptors, as well as they deal with serotonin receptors, histamine, 8- alpha one two adrenergic receptors, musc- muscarinic receptors, uh, acetylcholine receptors. They work on tons of things, and they basically are they they knock you out. Um, BHA, which was a food preservative, was used and is now... uh, Nobody makes it because it's been linked with cancer. Uh... Birth control. Jeez. Last thing I'll say is birth control. Birth control, as we know, it was created in the nineteen fifties. I should have led with this. This is one of the biggest things out there during the nineteen fifties, where uh, uh, birth control is generally. There's a lot of different ways we can do it now, but the primary thing is that you increase progesterone levels quite a bit when you get pregnant or when you release your egg after you, you uh, during after the follicular phase. Um, and you want to get pregnant, your body increases your, te- your progesterone quite a bit, and it re- remains very high during pregnancy. So if you just take progesterone re- uh, regularly throughout your cycle, your body's never going to release an egg, therefore you can't get pregnant. But this was completely uh, figured out during the 50s. Uh, fun fact as well, they uh, uh, progesterone was very hard to isolate back then, and they were actually able to take plant steroids from a yam grown in Mexico, and they were able to synthesize... Progesterones from that—that that could be were bioavailable in humans. So birth control really started as a yam in Mexico, and now it, it is what it is. And uh, that is—that uh, is all I will say. But uh, there's a lot to go on there. But the 50s were an incredible time for science. Very Just a much good so. collection, Scott. Yeah, yeah. nice. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I'll, I'll post a link to that website. It was—I uh, I literally talked about 10% what was on this website. They had a beautiful list of, of all the crazy, fun things going on back then, and they were all really important to science, and, uh, and so much of modern science is, is a derivative of this, this time period. So very, very, very cool. Delbert Jackson, please talk. So we've
2: talked about some interesting, notable scientists, Pauling, Watson, Crick. Uh, Christian, who is your nemesis again? Wilkins. Wilkins. Salk. Who could forget him. Yeah. Can you guys name any notable engineers from fifty years ago? Uh Polly.
1: You... Polly. <laughs> Who? Po- <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Didn't he have an exclusion <laughs> principle at the aforementioned portion of the show?
2: Engineers. Engineers. Engineers.
1: Who I'll bet one, one be of them was named Jack. Uh-huh. Like, as in, we don't know jack shit about this? <laughs> <laughs> I just figured it was a common name. I was, you know. <laughs>
2: so, yeah, it, I mean, it kind of proves the point that uh, even today, you know, I think you grab the average, uh, take my engineering field, computer science, and you'd have people scrambling for, you know, notable people amongst computer science. You know, people might mention... Sergey Brin, and Larry Page, they might mention the Facebook guy, or Steve Jobs, but those, Wozniak.
1: Yeah,
2: Wozniak. If you go to the list of computer scientists' wiki page, um, Wozniak's not even on there. So, in terms of computer science as a field, you know, it's, uh, there's, you know, not a lot of name recognition out there, and that's, partly why I picked the paper that I wanted to share, which is about Dijkstra's algorithm named for the author, Edsker Dijkstra. And since I messed up Farid last week, I made sure to get his <laughs> this pronunciation correct, but I can probably am still butchering it. And I wanted to bring this up not so much for the paper, but to give an idea of the man who is, I think, you know, part of that foundation of computer science. And also an insight into what computer science was like 50 years ago. So strap on your time machine, and let's go back to 1959. In that year, a three-page long paper entitled A Note on Two Problems in Connection with Graphs was published in the journal Numerische Mathematik, and a 29-year-old Edger Dijkstra uh, proposed an algorithm to solve two fundamental graph theory problems, the Dijkstra's algorithm, which it's so-called named, uh, is given for the shortest path problem. And so we've talked about network theory in the past on this show, but um, if you can imagine what this can be applied to, think of wanting to know the distance from one city to all other cities. And again, this might be somewhat heavy stuff to discuss on a podcast, but if you can think of a city as being oh, a vertex or a node in a graph, so if they were connected to other things, you could apply a cost, in this case, a distance between each connection, which is also known as an edge, between that city slash node and every other city slash node. Um, and Dijkstra's algorithm essentially solves the problem. What is the shortest path from any one of those cities to another one? Uh, So, of course, you can think of it in practical terms like that, but you could also think uh, in networking problems in general. If you have uh, computers all across the country and you're on the web in Reno, Nevada, and the page that you want is in Edmonton, Canada, Uh, you probably want to take the quickest path to get that so you can get your answer back. Uh, So the way that this works, there's some nice online descriptions of the algorithm, so I won't bore everyone in the podcast with it, but if you think about it as an explorer who goes, uh, starts from one city and can send out other explorers at a constant speed um, and cross each of these connections or edges in time proportional to how far apart they are. And then when that explorer reaches a city or a vertex it can check to see if it was the first explorer there and then if so it can mark down that path that it took to get there Uh, this means then that if it is it's the explorer that must have taken the shortest path possible to reach that vertex and then it can send out explorers along each edge connecting from that city to all of its neighbors and what's interesting about that Uh, Because that algorithm, anybody could kind of sit down and think about it. But the two interesting parts of it is that all the paths can be found as easily as it takes to find one path. And so that's really the important part. And that's where the algorithm part comes up with it is he actually has a mathematical proof for this. And there's some controversy over how unique this was in 1959. Uh, in the 50s, publishing in science wasn't like it is today, where you can publish and, you know, within months your results are online for everybody to read through PubMed or whatnot. Um, so there's a competing idea called Bellman's Principle of Optimality. Optimality. But what's really interesting is this Professor Douglas McElroy, he said that Dijkstra's algorithm for the time was very modern, and what's key is that it is given non-deterministically, which was distinctly unusual for the time. And he finally summed up Dijkstra's algorithm as saying, none of the thousands of retellings of the original nugget has been able to improve upon it. So it's interesting that this also gives an idea, looking back at this paper, about the climate of CS at the time. Um, this paper was very short. As I mentioned, it's actually only two and a half pages long, and it's in pure plain text format. There's no mathematical <laughs> expressions. There's no pictures. There's no nothing. Uh, and a few years later, three years later, Dijkstra was invited to become a professor of mathematics at Eindhoven Polytechnic, and they wanted to call his chair, his position, the chair of computing science because this was starting to become popular. But he objected to that. Uh, because he felt that computing wasn't yet scientific enough. And so he spent the next decade trying to get his papers out there so that computer science could be recognized as a proper discipline. And if you think about the papers, like how many papers do you have, Scott, published? Your author on, your uh, least, like, second author three on or one? or four. Awesome. Yeah. It's great. He, in 1967, in addition to writing papers, he also wrote what are called, oh, there's a, uh, he wrote these short little purse private papers that, uh, people eventually found and started circulating, but his at the journal? time of his, basically, but he, he would take like a topic though. And then he'd write like a paper for himself. But he said at the time of his death, he died in uh, 2002, I believe he had produced some 1300 papers, most of which were written
1: with a fountain pen. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It always like, it's shocking it's when you Lord. figure out how prolific some of these people are, where you're so proud to get a paper out in 18 yeah. months, and they're like, yep. uh, yeah, they they do. A, they average six to nine papers a year, and you're like, what? Yeah.
0: Well, it, it is important to note that like the Watson and Crick paper in Nature was like a half a page right 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 (laughs) so i mean what we call papers now are like 10 page bromides and back then it was like oh i had this
1: idea i wrote it down there it is it's cool and Dell, i don't know if you'd mentioned this but uh um, is it is there like what's the real practical application of this what like why would why would people care about
2: computing the shortest distance in a graph right so there's the practical idea of like if you're a truck driver or you own a company and you want to have your truck driver get to wherever he needs to go with the least amount of gasoline, this is how you would solve it. Uh, in looking this up, um, Wolfram mentioned that there is a reference to Dijkstra's algorithm in the show. I don't know if you ever watched it. I never saw it. It was called Numbers. It's like a CBS I've show. I've heard of it. And so they applied it there. A bunch of bank robbers applied it to figure out the quickest way to get out of the city because they had stolen a bunch of gold bars or something.
1: Well, I I can almost guarantee you I know who else has applied it is um, like FedEx and UPS. There's a a pretty well-known thing out there, and I'm pretty sure it's accurate. I don't think it's urban legend, whereas FedEx truck drivers are generally not permitted to take left turns. Because um, even though it may be the most direct route, uh, because of traffic and signals and the time you have to wait and burn gas, it's actually uh, more efficient for them to take three rights generally than it is for them to take a left. Um, And uh, I imagine this algorithm came into play somewhere in this line, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. And the idea of, like I brought up, the idea of computer networks. You know, the the World Wide Web is essentially just uh, interconnection of, you know, many, many different computers, right? And so, you know, when you do a search in Google and you want to pull that information up and Google says, oh, click this link, you know, that link, www.whatever you're going to, could be on an actual computer. You know, it's not necessarily cached at Google or, you know, saved at Google. It might have to go all the way over to Russia, you know, depending upon whatever you're looking at. Right. But that you don't have a direct, you don't have a wire going from your computer to Russia. But what you do have is a wire t- to your local network, which is connected to another network, another network. And so instead of taking the same path to get there, you can actually search and figure out the
1: shortest path ah, to get there. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, ones and zeros.
2: <laughs> but back in the time that he had produced this, like I was saying, computer science wasn't really an actual discipline in the 50s and 60s. I like how he
1: rejected the title, too, because he's like, uh, no, I want to be treated as a real scientist right now. And if <laughs> yeah. you give me that title, no thank you. Yeah,
2: yeah. the first computer science degree program was uh, formed at Purdue in 1962. Uh, so that was about the same time that he had taken that chair. And so it's just interesting, you know, as an engineer, as a programmer, or any engineers listening to the show, we, you know, we, Sometimes may forget how new our field actually is. Yeah. And so at this time, you know, in the late 50s, c- computer science, many thought that it was impossible for it to be an actual scientific field of study.
1: That surprises me, 62, because I mean, everyone knows that the Enigma Project, which was really a form of computing in, in, a, in all real sure. senses, that was in the early 40s. So we're talking but 20 who, years Who was to part be of that?
2: Who was part of that? Do you remember his name? I
1: do, but I'm completely
2: blanking. The man persecuted for his sexual orientation.
1: Give me the first letter. Alan. Alan Turing.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting you bring that up. I often feel like computer science started with him. You know, some people can like through time go back to like Babbage and you know look at these early calculators or whatever. But really, Turing was the one who, in my mind, and I think most people believe, was established computer science as an actual field. And with theory and everything associated with it. And that was, like you said, that was your thought of that. That was only like 25, well, he started work in the 30s. So really, it's right. just 20 years prior to this. Um, so again, Edgar Dijkstra, his algorithm was very important. Um, he uh, had some interesting words. I don't know, I'll just take another minute here if that's okay. Please, please. Uh, so, again, programming wasn't really a professional activity in those years, and he talked about that. He, the following then is a quote from Dijkstra in uh, one of his private papers. He asked the question, what about the poor programmer? Well, to tell the honest truth, he was hardly noticed. For one thing, the first machines were so bulky that you could hardly move them, and besides that, they required such extensive maintenance that it was quite natural that the place where people tried to use the machine was the same laboratory where the machine had been developed. Secondly, his somewhat invisible work was without any glamour. You could show the machine to visitors, and that was several orders of magnitude more spectacular than some sheets of coding. But most important of all, the programmer himself had a very modest view of his own work. His work derived all its significance from the existence of that wonderful machine. Because that was a unique machine, he knew only too well that his program had only local significance, and also, because it was patently obvious that this machine would have a limited lifetime, he knew that very little of his work would have a lasting value. So I find it very interesting, those words from Edsger Dijkstra, that he himself has made a substantial lasting impact to computer yeah. science.
1: Well, and what you say uh, that has really resonates with me is that uh, Steve Jobs, I, I saw an interview with him where he resonated or he he spoke of something very similar to that which is he said that all the work I'm doing now all the work we are doing because of the how fast computers move and how quickly they're being developed in 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 2030 years it will be as if we did nothing because nobody will ever remember the work we did because is going to be so far beyond that it moves at such an exponential rate that he really just mirrored exactly what this guy said. So yeah. I guess programmers are very aware of the fact that their uh, their work will not last.
2: And that's probably why Dijkstra is on the list of computer scientists, and neither Jobs or Wozniak are. No disrespect to them. You know, they contributed to the business side of computers, but in terms of computer science, the lasting value of developing algorithms and fundamental principles that sort of work is done by dykstra who none of us know but we know the wazes and the gates and the jobs
1: right awesome i love this show i don't know about you guys i thought this was fascinating like a really really cool look back so i hope everyone else liked it um delbert this is a uh this is a horrible disease that's been thrust upon you and I don't know if you're at all prepared or willing to do it this week but uh, it really is the highlight of my life sadly. Well
2: the sad thing is I was really preparing for my section as well
1: while everyone else Well talking. I was hoping you would just summarize everything I said and then we'll be fine. <laughs> to all of our loyal
2: listeners thank you for listening for the last 50 shows for putting up with our Wonderful jokes, our hidden messages, and our timely, timely science and engineering stories. Sadly, we won't be here for the next four weeks. So, what you should do is start with episode fifty and listen back to episode one.
1: That's it. That's Sorry. it. I love it, and it, <laughs> it, that's probably the first time they heard this. Is uh, we will we are taking a small hiatus. Um, I am the, the primary recording machine for the show, and uh, I've got my uh, very big scientific qualifier coming up. I've got I'm getting married. I got I, all kinds what? of
2: whoa, 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 whoa! Just Dharma, don't okay. Erase that so Dharma never hears that. Mention <laughs> your wedding first, then but, your <laughs> just, yeah, then is, your exam.
1: But that's a lot less worth. <laughs> the or, just,
0: or just say you were going chronological And, and hope it works My
1: eyes yeah. have been crossed Looking at a computer Finding almost 70 references To write a stupid qualifier for the last but two But your weeks.
2: heart has been burst By this beautiful woman that you're marrying In two weeks <laughs> Three weeks
1: Perhaps you could write my. Uh, <laughs> can I contact you to write help write what I'm going to say on my wedding day? Sure, we'll yeah. do we'll do some Cyrano de
2: Berginac stuff.
1: <laughs> exactly. You'll will we'll just put a little fob in my ear, and you can talk uh-huh. to me. Okay.
2: <laughs> All of a sudden, like you'll just be talking your normal voice, and then you'll mimic my baritone voice. Mm-hmm. Dharma, <laughs> you are
1: the greatest experience <laughs> life has ever provided me it sounds so natural <laughs> so um, we will be back in uh, a few weeks time I'm going to try to put together, put together a best of if I have time so uh, don't think we disappear don't think that we don't care or love you you guys are all wonderful human beings we will be back in a few weeks and uh, we can't wait to continue the show from there 50 episodes I think that round of applause Hey, 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 we just clap for ourselves. That hot because nobody else will clap for answer. us. Um, there, if you were to search, um,
2: is the show over? Or are you still talking to our audience? They're they're waiting to push stop on the podcast so they can go to the next one.
1: Okay, they can hit stop now.